I invite you to take your Bibles along with me, open them up to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. Moses has been in view, verses 25, 26, 27, and 28, and now 29, the corporate people of Israel follow along as I read, beginning in verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land. Whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Bow your heads with me and let's prepare our hearts and minds for the word of God with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, our King, bless your word this morning. Let us look back to your elect people, Israel, their deliverance by your hand, their faith in following your direction and your way, and let us follow your direction and your way you have given to us in this age as your elect people, the Church of Jesus Christ. Unto that final deliverance, which we also wait for in faith. Our glorification and transportation to be with you for all eternity in your kingdom that is coming and in the new heaven and the new earth that will follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. An entire chapter about faith. <clears throat> Many lives highlighted from biblical history. Real people, real situations. They looked out of two eyes, they breathed through one nose, they spoke with one mouth just like we do. They walked with two feet. There was nothing super special about how they were made. There was something special about how they walked. They walked with God. They trusted God, and that's why they're here as examples for us to follow. Every single one of them at points... The intensity of this will grow as we finish out this chapter. But every single one that's marked out here as a person of faith is someone who has become courageous. Let me say that again. Someone who has become courageous. We, all humans, are not born courageous. Ever wondered why we're not born like a little horse colt 
They hit the ground, and within minutes, they're up walking around. A few more minutes, and they can run by their mother. And then there's us. We're born, and for years, nothing. I don't mean nothing at all. If you're a mom, you're saying, what do you mean nothing? There's a whole lot of something, and the whole lot of something is caring for a weak child that if left to its own devices will be dead rapidly. There are no stalwart pillar of strength and courage. You look at that little pudge ball in the crib. Yeah. No. Courage is learned. Faith is a form of courage. Courage to trust God and take him at his word. What he says will happen, will happen. What he says is the best way for you to do something is indeed the best way. Those who are brave have trusted in the Lord enough to trust him again and be of good courage. You have to teach men to stand in a line of battle and not run. They aren't born that way. They're trained that way. Ancient Japan had a warrior society. We know them as the samurai. They followed a doctrine called Bushido. It means to serve. Does that surprise you? It means to serve. Yes, they trained for war, for defense of their people. They served their Lord. They valued courage. They sought it as a virtue. The samurai had this saying, and the saying is this, and I quote, they said, when you are ready to die... Then, you are ready to live. Kind of sounds similar to some of the words of Jesus Christ in our Bibles as a lesson to children of Jesus Christ who need to get strong. Jesus said, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life, listen, for my sake, for the master's sake, will find it. Paul said this statement, and it resounds down through history and time. And every time I read it, and every time you read it, it again rings true, but it rings resonantly, deeply. And it shakes us to our core, trying to understand what it actually all means. Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. For me to die, serving Christ, if you will, is gain. 
Ephesians, there's a list of armor. Because we do not wrestle as the samurai with sword and shield and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're spiritual. Ephesians will say, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Hebrews will tell us, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the separation of joint and marrow, soul and spirit. And is a discerner, when the sword of God is unleashed, it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It lays us bare and exposed and known. That's why sometimes when you read your Bible, you must needs cry. Or you must needs cry out to God for help, for you've been exposed. But therein you find courage. The God who lifts you up and says, follow me. This passage is going to give us three features of faith. Faith that risks everything for God. What is a faith that pleases God? It is in this case a faith that risks everything for God. And we will look into it so that we as well may gain courage, will become brave in following the plans and directions of God, just like these did. Let's begin. Faith that pleases God risks everything for God. And number one, in your notes, it risks drowning to follow God's direction. Faith that risks drowning. Drowning to follow God's direction. Look at verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so drowned. We are so familiar with the deliverance of Israel and the parting of the Red Sea that I don't think we look at it with the enormity that we should or even with the fear that would be garnered by the entirety of this situation. Moses is delivering God's people from Egypt, from bondage, and they are afraid. They're afraid Pharaoh's going to come after them, and they should be. And God is going to direct them not to the easy path, but to the hard path. Let me show you this. Faith risks death by drowning, over indentured service. Israel was now a nation of slaves in Egypt, and now they've been sprung by God. God having killed the firstborn of everything of Egypt, and now the people are marching. Let me take you back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 14. I wish I could read every word of this chapter, but I'll be moving around it and not always in order, and I'm doing that purposefully. I'm going to start now in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. 
This picks up Israel running and Pharaoh now following after them to bring them back. Verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? They're saying, here, just we get a taste of freedom. You bring us out of here, and now we're all going to be killed dead. The army of Pharaoh marches after us. Yeah, we plundered the Egyptians. They gave us their gold and those kind of things, but we don't have swords. We don't have horses. We don't have chariots. We're not ready for battle. And here comes the greatest nation on the face of the earth with the entirety of his army to bring us back. What's wrong with you, Moses? We're dead. Now, we might sit here in our padded pews and say, what a bunch of cowards. But let me ask you, how many times in your life have you ever, ever even had to deal with an armed person whose weapon had the ability to kill you and you had to stand there and wait for them? You up for it? Some young buck out there said, yeah, bring him on, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. You'll be afraid. Let me tell you something, the courage is not the absence of fear. Bravery isn't bravery unless you're afraid. Then we see if you can overcome your fear. So what's Israel going to do? They've just said... Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? And now verse 12, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? That's why I said faith risks death by drowning over indentured service. Let us just stay and be slaves. That's fine. We'd rather be an alive slave than a dead free man. Some logic in that, if we're honest. They go on to say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. God put them in this position, by the way. I want to bring you back now to the verses I did not read at the beginning of chapter 14 in Exodus. And I want you to find out what God is doing before God brings them to where they are, where they're terribly afraid. Listen. Exodus 14.1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Phi-Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. None of these places do you know nor will you. Let's just say they're on the way to the Red Sea. And you can't before it by the sea. 
For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, of the children of Israel, excuse me, they are bewildered by the land and the wilderness has closed them in. Basically, he's going to say, they're lost. They don't know where they're going. Why would he say that? Because the direction that God is telling Moses to lead the children out of Egypt is not the easiest and best way to get to the promised land that we now call Palestine at times. To get back to the land of Canaan that God had promised Abraham, that's not the way to go. The way to go north out of Egypt, along the Mediterranean Sea, before you get to the marshes of the Red Sea, that's the highway. But God's directions are the harder way to travel. As a matter of fact, an impossible way to travel. There is no bridge over the Red Sea. This is God's direction. If you were living at that time, you would be wondering yourself, what are we doing here? And you can understand why Pharaoh says, these guys have been slaves so long, they don't even know how to get back home. They're lost. Let's go take them out. But why did that happen? It will happen because verse 4, Exodus 14 says this. God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know, let me read that again, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord and they did so. It's really easy to say they passed through the Red Sea, isn't it? We're done. Next verse. It's more when you realize that God's direction for their deliverance had, one, already been prepared by him before time. Pharaoh is going to be used by God. He's going to move Pharaoh's heart to come after them. And he's going to send them on what seems to be the apparently the worst route in the world to get back home. And faith means... You've got to trust God and his directions. Are some of you those, you know, most of us have an acquaintance with GPS right now, the global positioning system that gives you directions wherever you go. You know, you're tapping. You know, you might even be in Lewistown. It's like, well, where is that street again? You just tap it, and there it is, right? But some of you are these kind of people, right? When it comes up and it gives you a route, you're like, no, nah, that ain't it. I know this city better than Google, I think. Or you're on the road somewhere and say, I'm not going that way. It's longer. I'm going to go this way. And I say, oh, yeah, I should have read there's construction. <laughs> All those great fun things. But some of you talk back to this. And sometimes we find ourselves talking back to the Bible, don't we? It seems like God has given us the harder way to travel. What's wrong with him? Why is he doing this? Why is this happening in our life? 
Certainly there's an easier way. Yes, but it's temporarily easy. Christian, God's going to use you to glorify himself. Not to glorify you. Is that a shock? He deserves the praise and the glory. We need the deliverer to deliver us. And if we want deliverance, we have to take God's directions to be delivered. Exodus continues. It was told the king of Egypt, verse 5, that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. We just let all the servants go. That's nuts. So we lost a few people. Let's bring them back and get them back in the yoke because I want breakfast and nobody's here to make it. And those buildings aren't going to get made with those bricks without these brick makers. So he made ready his chariot and he took his people with him. The people are afraid and rightly so. They think they're going to die. What does Moses do and what do the people do? You know, God always gives somebody the lead. God's designed all things to work that way. And the family has given the husband the lead and the responsibility. In society, he's given that to government as well, the people to follow for their protection. In Israel, God raised up mediators to lead them, and soon will come the judges who will lead Israel to the Lord. And even in the church, he's designed it this way, that there are those who will lead people by the word of God to follow God his way. And sometimes when people are afraid, God brings their leader and he leads the people to courage and to faith by the faith of the leader. Look at Exodus now, chapter 14, verse 13, if you'll skip down there. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. The people are terrified and he says, do not be afraid. And then he says this, stand still. We might say it this way, don't run. Don't run. Stand still and see, he says, the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Listen to this. Moses says to them, the Lord will fight for you. They don't have swords. They don't have shields. They don't have chariots. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. What do we have to do? Nothing. Just don't run. Isn't it interesting that in the armor passage of Ephesians 6, that's what we're commanded to do as Christians. And it says at the end of it, and having done all things, stand. It does not say attack Satan and his demons. It says stand. Just don't run. And watch God do it. 
You know, that's hard for us because from the time we are little and we learn to do something like tying our shoe, even if we're not good at it yet, the child says, no, me do. Me do. I want to do it. No, let me do it. Why? Because they want the glory. That's the way we all are. And God says, be still. Exodus, now skipping down, chapter 14 to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. You want the real translation of that? They went into the midst of the sea, not on dry ground. The Hebrew means dry shod. Dry shod. So all their animals and all of them walking on their sandals got no mud on their feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know a few things about places where water is and has been for a long time. It's amazing that God moved the water back each way and made a pathway, but it's even more amazing that when they walked through it, nobody got stuck in the mud. There was no mud at the bottom of the sea after a night of wind. The waters were a wall around them on their right hand and on their left. This is God's plan. This is God's direction. I led you here to an impossible crossing so that you will know that you are not delivering yourself. Because if you're the fast one, you might say like the proverbial joke about the grizzly bear and the two guys out there walking through the forest. Two men are out walking through the forest, hiking together. And they see a grizzly bear, and one immediately drops his pack, rustles around in it, grabs his tennis shoes off, and starts changing into his tennis shoes. And his friend says to him, what are you doing? You can't outrun a grizzly bear. He says, well, I don't have to outrun a grizzly bear. I just have to outrun you. So there might be somebody like that in Israel. The armies of, of Pharaoh are coming. They could say at the end, yeah, I outran them. Everybody else is pretty much gone, but ha <laughs> ha. I delivered myself. No, God brought them to a place where you couldn't run it. You can't swim it. You can't get through it. They're behind you. What are you going to do? Stand still. And watch God deliver. That's how you grow in faith. You let God do what he said he's going to do and quit trying to do it yourself. Let me take you on. Let her be in your notes. Faith's protection versus the folly of courage. Faith's protection versus the folly of courage. I just told you to be courageous, did it? Now I'm saying the folly of courage. I'm talking now about the courage of unbelieving men. There are some really brave guys in this story. This account, the Egyptian army, I'm telling you what, they're brave. There's a contrast here in our text, and it's just so short that if we don't make it and don't understand it for the profundity of it, we'll miss the whole goal of God in teaching it to us, which means go back and read this in the Old Testament. 
Here's our text. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Exodus 14, 23, and the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. There's the courageous guys. Israel is trembling on the shore. God backs up the sea into two big walls, dries it out, and they walk through. And then these guys actually charge into the midst. Can you imagine pursuing a people whose God has just taken the sea and backed it up and dried it out? And you're going to say, let's go kill these guys. We've got a chance. The same God that just killed all your firstborn. The same God that just sent frogs, same God that turned water into blood, the same God that sent the lice and the flies and all of those things, the plagues on Egypt, these guys are taking the order of their Pharaoh and they're going down in the midst of it. Now that's courage. I just have to say it. But sometimes courage is foolish. On a small scale, we find it with young men who say, hey guys, Watch this. Foolish courage to try something that ends up hurting them. On a grand scale, there's an army following Pharaoh whose heart has been hardened by God with piled up water on either side and they're running down into it. I say those guys deserve some kind of medal. They're going to have to receive it after death. Exodus 14, 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the water returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the army of Pharaoh. All the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, so not so much as one of them remained. Let me just tell you something. Armor doesn't float. Armored men, armored chariots, armored horses. He said, you won't see one of them. They drown. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What's the message? If you follow God's direction you'll safely travel where he intends you to go. If you don't follow God by faith in his direction, you will drown, you will drown trying to follow God, trying to follow the faithful who are following God. If you are sitting in church today thinking that by sitting here in this church, you're safe from the disaster of judgment of God, you are doing what Pharaoh did. 
you are acting in great courage. You are coming here hoping that you can follow us because we are getting ourselves through. But the message of this and the true message of God's deliverance unto eternal salvation is this. We are not getting ourselves there. We're following God by faith in his promise. And if you haven't put your faith in his promise that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to deliver you through a sea you cannot swim through to get you to eternal life, the promised land, then you're fooling yourself. And you're going to drown in the judgment of God. That's how it works. And some of you are drowning today. You just don't know it. You need faith to follow God. And the faithful just do what God says and trust him to deliver them, not vice versa. Number two, faith risks everything and faith risks even defeat to fight God's way. Faith risks defeat to fight God's way. Verse 30, Hebrews 11. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Again, succinct, precise, abbreviated, even less than Reader's Digest. This has been digested down so much, it is the least common denominator of biblical truth. And there's a vast section of scripture that needs to be brought to bear for us to remember what this was all about. We have just skipped from the book of Exodus all the way to the book of Joshua. Moses is now dead. He's been taken. And on the mountain he is. No more to be seen. Joshua is leading the people into the promised land to divide it, to conquer it. They've met some Amorite kings and destroyed them, but now the great city of Jericho is before them, a walled city of such grandeur and might and height that is to be impregnable. And our text just says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. What does that mean? So they got out there by the walls and went, uh, uh, screwed their faces up like this and said, I got faith. It's like they do at the basketball game. We got spirit, yes we do. We got spirit, how about you? And the other say, we got spirit, yes we do. We got spirit, how about you? And the one that can yell the loudest got the most, right? Is that how faith works? We got faith, yes we do. We got faith, how about you? And the other church looks back and says, oh yeah, we got faith. Look at what we can do. Look at what we can do. Oh yeah, then the other church says, well, then maybe we better do something. We better do something big. Oh, yeah, and that's how it goes in churches, doesn't it? One competing against the other and both saying, faith, faith, faith. Hmm. I'm not saying do nothing. I'm just saying, is that what God said to do? Is that walking by faith? You gin up enough ecstasy, passion. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. The end. This is an unheard of method, letter A. This is an unheard of method for taking a walled city. Here's the method that God gives Joshua. Joshua 6. 
Joshua 6.1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. Because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands. See, this is a key statement. Don't miss this. This is God promising a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. This can become relevant later. I just want you to note it as I move on. See, God says, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. Here is God's way. Verse 3. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests, now notice the specificity, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city, listen, this is a promise and a prediction, the wall of the city, God says, will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Wow. Nobody has ever tried to take a city like this. The city has a wall. There are known methods. One way is to bring ladders, but there's no ladders here. Another way is God to say, hey, make grapples. Get rope and grapples. Throw them over the wall and climb up. No grapples. No ropes. Another way taking longer for a siege to take place against a walled city is to build a siege mound. And just like on this pulpit, to start low and build a ramp until it reaches the height of the walls and then you walk over and you attack. Takes time, but it's proven to work. Another way is to go under the walls, to tunnel under, to be a sapper, to either destroy the wall with a big tunnel that you then collapse and the wall falls down, or you dig a tunnel and you all come out on the other side, open the gate, and everybody comes in. There was none of that. Or you can buy the city. You can go in and pay somebody who hates the king and they open the doors for you and it's all over. None of that. This is God's unprecedented way and that's the way he tells his people to have faith in him. Listen. Joshua 6, 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests, be, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armored men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did six days. Let me just say this. They could have been attacked any of these times. You realize that, right? Whoever did such a stupid thing to walk by the walls, they could have been shooting arrows at them, all kinds of different things, and they walk around and nothing happens, and they just walk around the city for six days. 
I mean, there's got to be one Israelite. I mean, these are the Israelites that said, what do you do, bring us here to die? Somebody's got to say, this is the stupidest thing we ever did in our lives. I can't believe this. You see these walls? We're walking around here. This Yahoo thinks they're going to fall down. I mean, what in the world's going on around here? See, that's the way armies work. Armies aren't just like, oh, yeah, guys, let's go. The, the general said, go. He's the smartest guy in the world. No, somebody in the lower ranks is saying, this is dumb. I don't want to go. But here they are. Verse 15, Joshua 6, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and stupid or not and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. And they shouted. Let me tell you something. This is real. This happened. Because God is bigger than the walls of a city. He spoke the earth into existence. What is a wall to him? But let me all tell you something as well, because you're Christians and you walked in the world and long, and long enough to know that sometimes this text is used and it's, they try to bring this and part of this methodology into the church. Amen? The seven times marching around. In my youth, I even heard in youth groups, and it kind of got steamed that if you march seven times around the girl you wanted to marry... She's done for. Walls of her resistance will be broken down, and she's yours. You know, I don't know who was ever stupid enough to do that, but I wasn't going to. I preferred the stealthful phone call, and if I got scared, I just hung up. No, people really do that. I've seen it in this town. A pastor marching around a graduate. Seven times, because they'd been studying this, and that was the way to set them on their way. I can't believe this. I've heard it on TV. Seven times. This is God's number. Claim it and do it. Remember what I said? This is a specific method given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose, and we cannot bring that into the church and say, whatever we march around seven times is going to work, because what are they always missing? The rest of the details. Where's the ark? Where's the priests? Where's the horns? Where's the rest of Israel with the guards in front and behind of mighty men of battle? Where are they? If you're going to do it, then do it. But you can't do it because you don't have an army, so you're marching around like some idiot. Now that's foolish. And I say that with emphasis because I've seen it so many times, and we've got to put an end to it right here. If anybody tells you that that's what this is saying and you can bring it into the church or your life today, they are lying to you. This was a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. It specifically happened and we are to do what God told us to do, not what he told them to do. I'm now calming my spirit. 
Point being letter two. A boot camp of sanctification in preparation for war. It's fun to read Joshua 6. But we have to remember Joshua chapter 5. This is what they did and were supposed to do before they tried to take Jericho God's way. Joshua 5 verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel. Note, God also dried up the Jordan River so Israel could walk across on dry ground after Moses died. This is not the Red Sea. This is the Jordan River. The Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel those kings heard about it until we had crossed over and their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. I want you to pay attention here. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Why were they doing this? Because while they wandered for 40 years in the desert, they hadn't been circumcising the new generation. Joshua 5, now verse 8. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Why circumcise? This is a covenant sign between God and Abraham of unity with the people of Israel and unity with God. God said, I promise you this land. He said that to Abraham. He gave him the rivers and the boundaries of the promised land. He said, I'm going to give it to you in the future. In Genesis 15, he says, for 400 years, your people are going to be in Egypt and they will languish there and then I will bring them out and bring them to the land as a promise. The promise is being fulfilled in Joshua here. So as a sign that they believe God's promise to Abraham that all the males born are to be circumcised and now they're circumcised that they're in unification with the people, a covenant people of God, i.e. Abraham's children, and that they're believers of the promise of Abraham. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. These reproaches are all that Israel had been caused to do as slaves in Egypt. It's now done away. I'm delivering you and I'm making your name greater than Egypt. Their army is dead. And you, my people, I am raising up and bringing to the land so that they will know that God is great. Verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover. So first, the covenant keeping of circumcision. Now they keep the Passover, direct command of God. And what does Passover commemorate? The deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Why are they doing it here in Joshua? Because 40 years have gone by. 40 years since they left the land of Egypt. Remember when they had a first chance to go into the land of Egypt? They sent out spies? 
They sent out 12 spies. 10 of them came back and said, we can't go. They'll kill us. And the hearts of the Israelites melted. They became fearful. They lost faith. And they didn't go. But two, Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. God will take them. Let's get after this. But since they would not, an entire generation of fighting men died in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness while God fed them with manna. Let's go on. Verse 10 again. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. You see, to keep the feast of Passover, you have to eat what you're supposed to eat on Passover, and you can't eat manna. And God stopped the manna on the doorstep to the promised land. You obey me and keep this Passover. Now the land will feed you. I fed you in your rebellion. Now the land I promised you will feed you. And that's what he's saying. From that day after the Passover of unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. God's provision. Faith. Skipping down now to Joshua 6, verse 18. They're at Jericho again. They've been spiritually prepared but now they have to be spiritually prepared even in their victory over this city that God is giving to them. Notice chapter 6, verse 18 of Joshua. And now you, God commands, by all means abstain from the accursed things lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron, listen, are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. You're not to take any of this for yourself. Lord knows when there's money laying around, this is going to be a big test. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. The victory, the faith. But wait a minute. Spiritual, right? Spiritual. What matters to God isn't your military might. What matters to God is that you believe him and let him reward you for believing him. It's easy to take our own reward from the world, isn't it? We look out there and they got stuff. They have things. We want things. We can get things. We can get so many things that we can have as many things as they got things. Uh-oh, here pastor is preaching against wealth. Is he going to ask for an offering? No. What am I talking about? I'm talking about looking to the world to fill your pockets 
rather than looking to God. You realize the world has nothing that God didn't give them. And you will have nothing that God doesn't give you. So work, follow God's way, and see what happens. I need to move on. All the silver, but all the silver and all the gold and all the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord, he says. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpets, and the people shouted with a great shout that they fell down flat. Now, there's another fight to be had. It's in a small place called Ai. It's so small, they don't think they need to send many. Listen, Joshua 7. Now Joshua sent men, verse 2, up from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth Aven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said, Do not let all the people go up, but let them let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. They lost. Verse 5, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebram and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted because and became like water. They just had the greatest victory. The walls fell down flat. They go to take a little nothing place, and they lose. Why? What's the lesson? The lesson is this. They didn't do it God's way. Joshua falls flat and prays before God. What's going on? He can't figure it out. Remember, we fight spiritually. We fight spiritually now. They had to fight spiritually then to be consecrated to the Lord, to be sanctified to the Lord. Listen. God speaks to Joshua, 7 of Joshua, verse 10. Now the Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> I love that. Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put in among their own stuff Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up. Sanctify the people. and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Now this sounds like something that just should be in the Old Testament, right? Don't take anything of theirs. Don't bring this stuff in. Why would he say that? Because most of the gold, most of the things that they would make and have as art or wear as jewelry would be dedicated to their idols. And as soon as you bring that junk into your house you're going to start worshiping those idols. That's one of the reasons why God had said through Moses to the children of Israel, when you go into the land, kill them all. 
All the Amorites got to die. All the Canaanites got to die. All their children as well. All their animals. And somebody might say, oh, God's kind of mean. No, God told us through his testimony to Abraham in Genesis 15 that for 400 years Israel will be slaves in Egypt because my wrath against the Amorites is not yet full. God gave the Amorites 400 years of mercy and they didn't believe him. So he used Israel to destroy them. That's called justice. And that's also called 400 years of mercy. I wonder how many years he's decided we shall have in this country that is an abomination. The sinfulness that we transport across the world. The church is no different. 2 Corinthians, not in your note, not in your note, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is not just for marriage. This is in all life. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness, says the Apostle Paul to the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 17, therefore, this is God's way. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Does that mean we're not supposed to talk to any unbelievers? No, God settles that through Paul in this very book, and I don't have time for it. It does mean don't worship what they worship. Don't follow what they follow. Don't pursue what they pursue. Pursue God's method and God's way. Somebody in Israel didn't do it God's way, and they lost. His name was Achan. Achan comes from the Hebrew root for trouble. Joshua 7, 20, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. Now, in case you start judging Achan and say, I would never do that, just stop right now. You are tempted just like other men, just like other women. How are you doing? How are you doing with what they are putting out there in the world on the internet? You name it, in your relationships, what you value. Come out from among them. 
Achan says, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with silver under it. Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver under it. Verse 24, Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over them a great heap of stones still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger before the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, a play on words which also comes from troubled to this day. This applies to us how. You've seen it in 2 Corinthians. Let me just sum up. Titus chapter 2 says this to the church via the Apostle Paul inspired word of God. Verse 13. For the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Purified. Israel was called on to sanctify themselves, which means to set themselves apart for God's use. Zealous. We don't use that term. What, what is zealous? Let, let me describe it. There's dogs and there's cats. Two very different worlds. If you have a dog, you have a zealot. Dogs are zealous to please their master. Even after they get in trouble, they come crawling back, whining, <laughs> wagging their tail, please let me be close to you. Please let me try again. I'm here. I'm here for you. I love you. Oh, oh, oh. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. You can't get rid of them. They keep coming after you. That's zealot. Then there's cats. Cats get on the counter. You know what cats do on the counter when there's butter on the counter? They lick the butter. They sculpt it. And you say, get off of there! And they scritch across the counter. The goblets that they just tiptoed through without spilling one, they spill them all over. And they run and they hide under the bed. And you try to get them to you. Come here, come here. No, they're not coming. That's not a zealot. That's a rebellious heathen under there. Pretty sure. I might have just said all dogs are saved and all cats are going to hell. I'm not sure. That, that's not true. It's an example. God set us apart purified for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. You know, I learned something about sanctification. I know i got to sum up. I always go along, and we're not getting to point three anyway, so buckle up. Stand. Don't be afraid. We will eat. I learned something about sanctification that clarified something for me. It was an article, my resources, and it was amazing. I read some parts many times, but 
Here's one part of it. How do we get ready to go God's way? And how do we do this? What's sanctified? And he gave a dictionary kind of definition. It was this, the state of proper functioning. Like, okay, that's kind of boring, okay. State of proper functioning. Yawn. Now listen. He said to sanctify is to set a person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. To set it apart. What it was made for, it is sanctified when that is what it is doing. That is what it is used for. So you take a pen, he says, and when a pen is used to write, it's sanctified. It is being used for what it was designed for. Right? And then you look at a person. A person is sanctified when he or she lives according to God's design or purpose. What's the problem in the church today? We don't know what we're designed for. We're not designed for the world. Paul just said that he might redeem us to buy us back from every lawless deed. To be lawless is to be used for something you aren't designed for. So men, if you're a boy, you've been made by God to become a man and to take all the responsibilities of a man, to be a husband from the very beginning, fill the earth and multiply. Women and men have been put there to get married, not to just anybody. come out from among them. To be a father to your children. To raise them up in the fear of the admonition of the, of the Lord. To be a protector and a provider and a priest in the home and to be the head of the family. When you are doing that in your family and leading your family to God, you are a sanctified man. And you women... As a woman, you are made to be a woman and to enjoy being a woman in all the womanliness and you're to let men enjoy that you're a woman. That's part of the glory of this. You're to enjoy men and men are to enjoy women for being that. To be a wife, to be a mother, fill the earth and multiply. That is bearing children. To be a keeper of the home, full of good works, says Titus. We're reading in Titus. That is your sanctified purpose. You're fulfilling what God made you do. When we do that, we are set apart for God. So in this world, where they're saying a boy can be a girl, a man can be a woman... And a girl can be a boy, and a woman can become a man that is an unsanctified abomination before the Lord. 
An abomination means to be used for something you're not designed for. God made you glorious as you are. And by faith you need to believe that. And be used of God in the church for those purposes. Are you willing to risk it? Against the world, unto death, to do it God's way, to be zealous. Like the puppy dog that keeps coming back. I don't care how many times or how bad it gets in the world. I come wiggling back to God. Let me do it your way. Let me try again. Let me try again. Let me try again. I'm sure I can be least trained. I'm sure. But some of you are off the leash. Right? God says this is my way. And there's churches all over the way. It's blurring the line. They're taking the wealth of the city of idols Jericho, and they're hiding it in their tents under the floor thinking God doesn't know. And you're going to lose. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. He doesn't just tell us fables and fairy tales in the Bible. He tells us real truth. We believe the walls of Jericho fell down. We believe that the Red Sea parted. We believe that the Jordan parted. Not because we were there, but we know he who said these things can be trusted. And if you will follow him in your life and go in his direction and go in his way, and you say, well, Pastor, you haven't told us what that way is. Yes, I have. I've been here almost 13 years, and I've been telling you every Sunday, and I'm going to keep on telling you. It's in the New Testament. It's built up by the Old Testament and there's a lot of it. So come wiggling back to God and let's keep following it. I gotta quit. We've gotta have communion yet. May the Lord take this and use it. Let's pray. Father, that's my prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are master. Take us, Lord. Let us have faith to stand and watch you work. Let us have faith to go in a direction that seems a harder way, not an easier way. Let us have faith to do it your way exactly so that we'll have victory not a victory by our own hands, but a victory by your hands in our personal lives and in the world around us. Help us, Lord, we pray. As we go to your table, let us sanctify ourselves for the use you've made us for. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.